There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Statesman's Hidden Histories podcast and our new series, The Great Forgetting, Women Writers Before Austin. Episode 4, Unsexed Females. Survey with me what ne'er our fathers saw, a female band despising nature's law, as proud defiance flashes from their arms and vengeance smothers all their softer charms. That's from Richard Polwell's 1798 poem, The Unsexed Females. He's talking about radical poets and novelists such as Charlotte Smith, Anna Letitia Barbold, and of course, Mary Wollstonecraft herself. In this episode, we'll look at the 1780s and 1790s, when female writers became associated with the campaigns to abolish the slave trade and with the threats to the established order posed by the French Revolution. I'm joined by Sophie Colombo and Journey Bachelor. Sophie, I'm going to begin by asking you, um, this poem trots through a fair old list of, of, of names. Was there anything of a, you know, any idea of a kind of group? Would they people have known each other? Would they have associated with each other? Or did he suck them all together just by virtue of being women whose opinions he didn't like? Well, first of all, Richard Polwheel is writing The Unsexed Females in reply to a poem by a guy called George Dyer, who uh, in his poem On Liberty had written about how women are more disposed to be on the side of liberty politically than men are. And Dyer brings up these names of particular women who he thinks does who he thinks do this wonderfully. So you've got Mary Wollstonecraft in that list, you've got Charlotte Smith in that list, you've got Anna Letitia Barbold in that list. Um, and so uh, Dyer has praised them. And Paul Will comes back with this poem, The Unsexed Females, to say, no, this is absolutely disgraceful. There is this tendency for women to um, uh, deviate from the kind of model of womanhood that is most um, desirable and most conducive to a happy society. Um, in answer to your question, is there anything that links them together? Because Paul Will kind of goes off on one and brings in a lot more names than Dyer ever did. I think, you know, in, in some respects, yes. You've got, for example, Mary Wollstonecraft and Charlotte Smith, who both um, wrote in support of the French Revolution. But in some respects, absolutely not. I mean, Paul Will attacks all sorts of odd and bizarre things in this poem, ranging from um, support for the French Revolution to um, uh, deviation from traditional um, Protestant religion, to um, fashions, to frizzling the hair and exposing the bosom. Um, I was going to ask, is he going to be one of those people who's going to go off on one about riding habits being hermaphroditic oh, like absolutely. they used to in the Tatler and the Spectator in the middle of the century? Absolutely. He probably didn't have space to get onto riding habits, but certainly the frizzled hair and the bosom there are very, very um, scandalous in Paul Wheel's view. Um, and lots of other things. So in a way, the list of unsexed females that he gives, uh, it's very, very hard to find anything that, that binds them all, but that is reflective 
of the 1790s. There's a sense of all distinctions being muddled, overcome, turned inside out. And it's very hard to pin down exactly what the problem is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a bit more out of it because I'm, I'm kind of enjoying my heroic couplet. I th- yeah, it is heroic couplets, isn't it, actually? Um, so this is the idea of, 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 of Wollstonecraft having infected everyone else. She spoke and veteran barbled caught the strain and deemed her songs of love, her lyrics vain. And Robinson? Who's Robinson? Mary Robinson. To gall her fancy gave and traced the picture of a deist's grave. So I presume he's very upset about religion at this point as well. It's good, he's really, he's really roaming widely. Uh, and charming Smith, Charlotte Smith, resigned her power to please poetic feeling and poetic ease. And Helen? Helen, Helen Mariah, Mariah Williams. Williams. <laughs> Thank you. Fired by freedom, bade adieu to all the broken visions of Peru. I was quite surprised at that point, I have to say, to pause and go, what's Peru got to <laughs> Was Peru a big, big thing at the time? I... Oh, now you're asking. Um, Helen... I think it helps his rhyming couplets. <laughs> <laughs> a Jew. You sit there and go, a Jew, a Jew, a Jew. <laughs> Peru, yeah, something about Peru. Um, rhyming dictionaries are a great thing. So. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, yeah. And Yearsley, Annie, and Yearsley, presumably, who had warbled nature's child midst twilight dews her minstrel ditties wild, though soon a wanderer from her meads and milk she longed to rustle like her sex in silk. Disgrace. And stole the modish grin, the sapient sneer, and flippant haze, so that's Mary Hayes it of Memoirs of Raymond Courtney, assumed a cynic leer. So you've mentioned, um, Sophie, that all of these are, are writers. His thing seems to be particularly, he really doesn't like ladies with opinions. Yes. Um, and, and, and why is that? Is that a, is there a, were these women really popular? Were people fundamentally paying attention to these women? Is that what he's objecting to? I think yes. I think all of those women in their own particular ways are extremely successful writers. And actually, yes, I, I said there was. it was hard to identify a common strand, but you've hit it perfectly. It, it was that they were writers. So that could tell us something, perhaps, about how the notion of writing successfully seems to be fund- fundamentally transgressive at this point. Now, with the French Revolution occurring a few years earlier, almost a decade earlier, and um, a print explosion of pamphlets supporting or criticising the French Revolution, um, perhaps that has bearing on that uh, anxiety about um, female writing. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, for example, um, obviously wrote one of the most successful uh, pamphlets of the Pamphlet War, a vindication of the rights of man. So th- let's just stop and pause about this idea about the Pamphlet War. So the f- French Revolution sort of kicking off in the 1780s, then there's the, the... I think they get executed in 1792, 93, the, the French royal family, but they've been in prison for, for some mm. time before that. So you have Edmund Burke goes over there and writes Reflections on the Revolution in France, where he basically does a kind of freak out of going, oh my God, it's all anarchy. I, I was really surprised by the notes you sent over, so where you said that obviously we knew that they, they changed the calendar, you know, Brumaire and all these other revolutionary months, but that 10% of the population changed their name. I presume that was that people trying to sound less aristocratic. If you were do something, did you suddenly kind of go, no, my name's Bob? Partly. <laughs> Partly. I mean, yes, you're right. There's this sense of absolute upheaval. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've got sweeping reforms of practically everything going on. And um, changing names is a huge part of that. Um, some of it is about taking religious references out, right? Because with the kind of disestablishment of... of of the Catholic uh, Church and, and all that sort of thing, um, you get street names and, and place names kind of de-religiousified, if you like, so you'll have Liberty Square or whatever it is. And then people start doing it to their own names. Partly it's about taking out the saints' names, partly it's about aristocratic names, um, but the names that you get coming in are fantastic. You know, you'll be kind of, um, you know, you, you could have been 
Raoul de Agramont or something, and then you, 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 you decide that you're going to be called Citizen Liberty or what? Because the royal family ends up called, you know, they killed Louis Capet, weren't they, and Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. Capet. They just, they, 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 that was how the, the names they were executed yeah. under. Yeah, so they, and, go, they go back to their original names, but the Duke d'Orléans, who was, um, you know, kind of, I think, the cousin to the king, um, he very famously becomes Philippe Egalité, yeah. Philippe Equality. Uh, and, you know, that's a real crowd pleaser. Uh, and it gets to the point where you've got 10% of the population is, is the closest estimate doing this. The funny thing is, that actually, the, the British monarchy did this as well during the... The Second World War, or the First World War, basically they were they they took all the Germanic bits out of their name, and that's when yeah. they became the, the mm. Windsors. And they kind of mm. went, no, not that. Which is I, one of the things that yeah. perpetually surprises me about the First World War was, you know, it was people fighting their first, you know, like uh, uh, the other country that we're fighting is led by my first cousin. It's yeah. kind of, a, yeah. I mean, you've had bad family Christmases, but not <laughs> not that bad. But um, but the pamphlet war that arranged it, I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft is, it's it's tempting to see her as a kind of a total exception, Jenny, as, mm. as somebody who is... Because she's the one that we remember, right? She's the one who's, mm. whose writings have survived. And I wonder if there's this... Con- we started off this podcast by saying that the, the tendency is to sort of think that Jane Austen sprang from, from nowhere, and actually yes. she comes out of a very established tradition. Is that the same thing for, for Wollstonecraft? Wollstonecraft absolutely does not come, come out of nowhere. I mean, she, she, she was an incredibly well-read woman. She had a very... Um, piecemeal education it has to be said and she was she was very sort of sporadically educated and mostly self-educated but nonetheless I mean she was certainly undeniably informed by a rich tradition of of what we would now think of perhaps as proto-feminist or even feminist writing you know dating way back to the 17th century I mean even to people like Mary Astle for instance who's writing in the 1690s writes a wonderful piece of um political, polemical at times writing called A Serious Proposal for the Ladies. You know, how, how do we, how, what do we do with women who don't want to get married? Because some women might actually want to not get married. And, and what cultural value should they have? How can women be active citizens in a society? Which is precisely the same question that animates Wollstonecraft and that is the, the through strain, really, through through all of her writing, not, not just her essays and her pamphlets. That's really fascinating because Rebecca Traister, who's an American journalist, has literally just this month published a book called All the Single Ladies, which is about the fact that single women are now a, a, a large voting block, basically, and we've never had to consider the concept of single Yes. women uh, in political you know it's always been women have been seen in relation to, to families I want to bring in Charlotte Smith because I know Sophie you, you've lectured on her before she was friends with Wollstonecraft she knew Wollstonecraft she knew Godwin better mm. William Godwin who was uh, Wollstonecraft's husband um, they would have uh, been aware of each other in fact I think Wollstonecraft reviews Smith's work um, there's no evidence they were friends I don't think that personally can I take a moment to get a ruling on William Godwin so I know <laughs> William Godwin of having wrote Caleb Williams which I have to say was not my favourite novel I think it's fair to say and it's also, a cracking novel okay. alright so we're, we're pro we're pro the work of William Godwin here but also for having inadvertently advertently trashed the reputation of Wollstonecraft oh. after her desk do, do we think that was motivated from a I've got to say, Godwin's place. not on his finest form, in my view, when he writes the memoirs of Wollstonecraft, his wife, straight after her death. So she um, dies in childbirth, and then he writes does. this memoir that says she was, what, well into free well, love? Or... It was absolutely scandalous for the time. We cannot emphasise enough how scandalous this memoir was. Why was it scandalous? Because instead of providing a kind of um, hagiography, a sort of um, sanitised 
portrayal of all her virtues. Um, Godwin does say some very nice things about her, but he talks in great detail about her extramarital love affairs, her illegitimate child, uh, her suicide attempts, um, and her death in childbirth. He also, I have to say, is quite sniffy about her writing in mm. it, which is the thing That's that the really problem. ticks yeah, me Yeah, the writer of Callum Williams, in my opinion, should not be <laughs> casting anyone else well, out. I, 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 I do love Caleb Williams, but... Um, yeah, it sort of ticks me off how um, Godwin sort of d- dismisses uh, the importance of Wollstonecraft's writing. He, try- he portrays her as a creature of sentiment, mm. delicate, trembling, pure and exquisite sentiment, which anyone who's read Wollstonecraft mm. knows is absolutely not the case. So I'm, I'm, I've never been a, a fan of the memoirs, to be honest. Okay, well, But I do I'll- think, I mean, I really do think he genuinely, I mean, to, in, in Godwin's defence, which is a position I don't often occupy, but in Godwin's defence, I would say that, I mean, he clearly intended it to be a great sort of written love letter to his recently deceased wife and And to be fair he was writing it in a place of extreme grief it was written very soon after her death absolutely and you know he he knew all of those things about her life and they did not matter to him you know okay so i've had a ruling on godwin but let's go back to charlotte can i just quickly say speaking of letters if you want a laugh you have to read godwin uh godwin's love letters to wollstonecraft they're absolutely hilarious there's one where he says when i come upon you like jupiter with semele will you not tremble do these menaces not terrify you? And if you know anything about Godwin, he's the most ridiculously pedantic philosopher imaginable. Um, it's just wonderful. So yeah, Godwin's... But in his mind, him. he was like Jupiter, like raining yeah. down like golden yeah. rain um, or like a bull or something. Um, <laughs> but back to, yeah, back to so, so Charlotte Smith, I think, is a really good illustration of why it's surprising that we have as much female writing as we do from the period, Sophie. I mean, she, how many children did she have? with this ne'er-do-well husband who I've taken against on the basis of your your, your briefing. Oh my goodness, deservedly so. Um, She gave birth to, I think, 13 children. 12, 12 children. Um, Nine lived into adulthood. So it's a huge brood of children. Um, Essentially, Charlotte Smith saw herself as having been, at the age of 14, uh, sold like a Southdown sheep, as she put it, by her father to Benjamin Smith, who on on the paper seemed like a decent match. He was from a wealthy family whose wealth depended on the slave trade. Uh, He was handsome. uh, He seemed to have good prospects. Unfortunately, you know, they weren't given a particularly good chance to get to know each other, I don't think. And he turned out to be incredibly um, stupid, vicious and cruel. Mm. Um, So you've got the situation where for, you know, 20, 30 years, Charlotte Smith is married to him. She bears all these children. She accompanies him to debtor's prison, um, where he spends some time, and she actually writes her first book of poetry from there. And then eventually, she leaves him. She can't divorce him. Divorce is not an option. And under couverture, the legal principle that says a woman's identity is completely subsumed into a husband's upon marriage, he owns absolutely everything that she makes. She, has, she can have no independent wealth of her own, but she has nine children to feed. So you've got the situation where Charlotte Smith is writing poetry, she's writing novels, she's um, writing at an absolutely phenomenal rate, and she sells well, she does very, very well. Um, and she's trying to hide her money from Benjamin, who is living in Scotland with a mistress and periodically pops across the border to pick up the money that he makes in the bank from her dowry, um, get his hands on whatever money she's made from her books and go back up north. Mm. And this absolutely, you know, it's, she's obsessed with it quite understandably. It's devastating for her. Um, and in her 
uh, rich and varied works of fiction and poetry, you find this constant sense of suffering, of alienation, of outrage at the law that has allowed her to be treated like this. Did they have all their children together before he left? Or did he pop across the border and... No, I think I think she'd had them all by the time that she informally, obviously, separated from him. But leading up to that time, there were certainly difficult times in the marriage when she was still bearing his children. And I mean, she describes physical abuse of I know uh, you you know I've seen him strike and kick me once at table, throw a quart and loaf at my head without provocation at all, but the frenzy. That informs her work, doesn't it? I mean, it does. she she gets some of her revenge on him by creating character, creating ne'er-do-well men in, in the books. Indeed, yes. Um, one of her most fascinating novels is Desmond, which is a novel that she writes. Which same. is not an 18th century novel title I was expecting. <laughs> no! <laughs> oh, don't get me started on the title, because it's really interesting. Essentially, all her <laughs> earlier titles... Should be called shouldn't it? It should. Essentially, all her earlier titles are um, Emmeline... Etheline, etc. You know, sort of um, fanciful Gothic um, kind of female names, and um, you know, correspondingly, the, the narratives themselves are Gothic. Desmond is a deeply political novel. It's set in the French Revolution, and it's about Desmond, this nobleman, Lionel Desmond, who um, who goes across and who observes the French Revolution at first hand and has all these debates about politics. Smith writes this wonderful preface where she says. Uh, before she starts Desmond, but it is women, it is said, should have no interest in politics. Why not? And that is an incredibly controversial question to ask. But the counterpoint to that, what we might think of as sort of revolutionary or social politics, is the marital politics involved. Desmond is in love with Geraldine, who is an unhappily married woman who is subjected to the behaviour of her husband, Richard Verney, who is a very thinly veiled portrayal of Benjamin Smith. She, so she's writing her own troubles into this. And there's this tension between the politics of the French Revolution and the tyranny, however you see that involved in the French Revolution, and the tyranny of marriage, of gender politics. And how much, I mean, I, I guess it's not the case of Wollstonecraft because she died too early, but the other writers, did they become disillusioned and disappointed with the French Revolution? Because I know there was a, a large debate about whether or not the revolution would include votes for women, and eventually they went, no, no, later. Um, and, you know, did they, as it became, as the terror started, did, did these revolutionary impulses in England become much more muted? Well, I mean, it's a, it, Charlotte Smith is a great uh, writer to, to see that sort of shifting, to see those shifting sensibilities uh, through. I mean, for example, one that comes immediately to mind, she writes an absolutely wonderful epic poem in two books called The Emigrants, in, which is published in 1793. And one of the many things that is completely extraordinary about this poem is that the, the way that she composed it, the first, part, the first book is composed just after the September massacres in 1792, which resulted in the death of, I think, about 220 clergymen. It was it was an appalling, appalling atrocity. Um, and she writes that book while she's still wanting to believe in and cling on to the, the, the revolutionary principles that have nonetheless led to this very bloody event. She still fervently believes in liberty. She still fervently believes in the revolutionary ideal, as it were. But the second book of the poem is written just a few months later. It's written in April after the execution of Louis, when Marie Antoinette is being imprisoned with the children and just before they will be executed, although she does not know this is going to happen. And even just within those two books of the poem, you can see the tide turning. She finds it harder and harder as the terror starts to... Uh, 
uh, as, as terror is beginning to be introduced as the reality of this war. And not just on particular individuals like Louis, for instance, and Marie Antoinette. You know, Charlotte Smith, in a way, I think, really deserves a reputation as one of the first war poets. You know, she writes about the consequences of revolution. It's going to affect women and children. And that's mainly her focus in the poem, the woman and the child on the shore who end up consumed by this apocalypse of destruction in the second book of The Emigrants. It's one of the most powerful pieces of writing I've ever seen. And it is absolutely sort of symptomatic of that. I mean, her, her writing is so very wonderfully demonstrates just in that one poem alone, just how hard it is to cling to those revolutionary principles, no matter how fervently you believe in them, when you actually see the reality of those situations unfolding so devastatingly before your eyes. And before we move on, I just want to quickly mention that obviously Paul Wheel writes about unsexed females. He can implicitly or maybe explicitly contrast them with with with, with proper women mm. where he mentions Frances Burney for example the blue stocking circle but also Hannah Moore and Hannah Moore is someone I you know I I studied this period and I loved it at university but I never really got to grips with her because she seemed to me so alien you know so much of rediscovering the 18th century is about kind of going oh before the Victor you know Victorians people were kind of fruity and they you know did interesting things and they talked in interesting ways Hannah Moore seems to be to be relentlessly dreary <laughs> and just Poor kind of Hannah. constantly telling you to starch things and be more virtuous <laughs> am I doing her a disservice or is she was she a bit of a bore Hannah Moore is really really difficult for that's yes isn't it <laughs> for a feminist scholar as you say excited by the transgressions of the period the boundaries being broken um, she's very difficult because she is um, in some ways a relentless bore and she's very very didactic she's very very moral um, but she is probably the most read writer of the 1790s. She's, she accomplishes something that no other writers do. She takes on Thomas Paine and Thomas Paine's Rights of Man. So she's contributing to this pamphlet war with these things called the cheap repository tracts, which are short, very, very simple, that's the point of them, um, dramas or tales or dialogues in which the moral is always um, do not read Thomas Paine's Rights of Man and do not support the French Revolution, also go to church. Um, and they sound awful, and they kind of are when you read them, but they were absolutely phenomenally um, influential and successful. And millions and millions of these tracts were circulated, and it was a real franchise, the cheap repository tracts. And she was, you know, her influence was absolutely unparalleled. So I think one kind of, if, if one is of the leftist liberal persuasion, which many academics are, um, you sort of have to grit your teeth and hold your nose a bit. But it's not fair, I think, to try and disregard her or sweep her under the carpet because she's not on the side that feels sexy and fun. Yeah. And actually, I think, you know, if you read, if you... I mean, it's again, I'm putting myself in a slightly unusual position. I'm rarely the person in the classroom, for instance, who would defend Hannah Moore. It's usually my students who try and do that. But if you actually read something like her, her wonderful work, Strictures on the Modern System of Female Education, which is very much, you know, it does what it says on the tin. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful rhetorically very well written essay about women's education although she comes from a very different starting point from Mary Wollstonecraft in terms of her the kind of assumptions she has about what is natural for men and women in terms of their physical capabilities their intellectual capabilities actually there's much more common ground than we would probably like to acknowledge between the, 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 the educational politics of her writing actually and the educational politics of somebody like Mary Wollstonecraft and you know, you know, Moore was, as, as Sophie's saying, incredibly influential and very political in 
quite progressive mm. ways in some respects certainly yes. in regards to abolition for instance she was she she was an absolute trailblazer ah well what you've done there is you brilliantly managed to find a segue so that we can move on to talk about abolition because we've talked a little bit in other episodes about the kind of rise of the middle class about prosperity about better incomes now it's only fair to acknowledge that a lot of that was built you know the uh, places like liverpool and london did prosper in the 18th century on the backs of human cargo so Sophie, just give us some idea. So there's always a prayer base about there never being slavery on, on British soil, but there was certainly an enormous number of Britons involved in the transatlantic slave trade, weren't there? Absolutely, as you rightly said, Liverpool, Bristol. And it was said of Bristol, I think in the early 19th century, that every brick there was cemented with a slave's blood. And, you know, you can you can see that walking around Bristol today, just regard to the street names, for example. Um, but there's a conventional narrative, isn't there, about the slave trade, um, that you have these very great reforming lawyers. So there's Granville Sharp, who's this kind of very radical lawyer, there's William Wilberforce, an evangelical Christian who amounts this decades-long parliamentary campaign. There's people like Lord Mansfield who delivered it. Is it the, the Zong judgment is the one where basically they're on a ship crossing the Atlantic and the, for, the captain realises that he won't get any money for, for slaves who are, who are died on, you know, who are, who are dead or dying on arrival, but if they're lost overseas and he gets them. So it's basically an insurance fraud that then leads to a, an important ruling on, on whether or not it's basically legal to murder slaves. And that mm. kind of doesn't really come out in the way that one might hope. But, that, you know, I went to see the film Belle last year or the year before last. I really enjoyed it because I like looking at dresses and Kenwood <laughs> Park. But you would get the impression that this was all happening in a world of men and that women's only entry to it is to sort of stir the feelings of men. That's a pretty inaccurate reflection of it, isn't it? Yeah, I think the conventional narrative about the abolition of the slave trade in Britain um, is deeply self-congratulatory. It's this idea that a Christian humanitarian ethos represented by white men like Granville Sharp and William Wilberforce triumphs and, um, you know, well done well done to all of us. Um, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I mean, um, Mansfield, for example, he uh, sometimes has this measure of fame for judging in the James Somerset case that Somerset, who was a slave, um, couldn't be removed from Britain and brought back wherever he, wherever his owner wanted to take him against his will. And this all led to all this, um, uh, the air of England is too pure for a slave to breathe, etc. It, that's not actually really what the case meant. Um, it didn't really lead to to that at all. Um, and with the Zong case, the absolutely horrific massacre of 133 slaves to claim on the insurance, which you mentioned, Mansfield also judged that case, and he found for the captain and the owner of the ship um, and said they'd done nothing wrong because essentially the slaves were cargo. So there are these complexities to that narrative, and I think there are certain constituencies whose contributions to abolition were absolutely crucial and have been completely elided. I mean, in the public perception, perhaps, um, many scholars have noted these contributions by women, by black women and white women, by black men as well as white men. So there were, I mean, this is something that perennially comes up. There were there were black people in England at this time. So you have Alado oh, yeah. Equiano, whose yes. his memoirs are, are sell very well. You mentioned yeah. also uh, Phyllis Weekly. Yes. Um, some of the most famous people of African descent living in Britain at this time are Alado Equiano, who writes his own life, his own memoirs, and there are other um, freed ex-slaves who also do so, and there's a guy called Groniasaur, for example. Um, Phyllis Wheatley is the first African um, 
female poets, I think, to be published in Britain. And she does that really quite early in the 1770s. She's brought across, she's never actually freed, but her owners see themselves as these sort of benevolent owners and they bring her across as a sort of marvel. Look at mm. our slave, she writes this wonderful religious mm. poetry. Um, and she, she addresses the slave trade in her poetry somewhat obliquely sometimes. Um, you know, there's a thing, Toni Morrison has talked about this in, in relation to her wonderful novel, Beloved. When one's looking at the narratives and the poetry produced by slaves themselves or ex-slaves themselves, Toni Morrison says there's a sense of frustration because they operated in these patronage networks where essentially they had to write what their white patrons would approve of. So there's a sense in which she thinks they can't really talk about the horror of it as, as, as much well, and, as they and in, could. And in white men's forms. I mean, Wheatley's yeah. often writing in a kind of, you know, the kind of form that we'd expect an Alexander Pope poem, for absolutely. instance, to be written in. Yes, absolutely. But that's, I mean, that's a perennial kind of question throughout social, for social reformers down the ages, and I guess it's one that still applies now, is, is how much you use, you know, the tools that you have, how much you play on people's, you know, prejudices or whatever that you wouldn't necessarily support. So, for example, that idea about the air being too pure, how much you play on the idea of British exceptionalism or British self-pride mm-hmm. to say, no, the British can't do this because we're, we're special, mm. we're much better than mm-hmm. other people and therefore we shouldn't do this, which in itself is is a, you know, is a, is a slightly is a racially motivated kind of way of, of looking at it. Well, this would be a great moment to bring in Hannah Moore. Um, so from the seven, late 1780s, you get this real explosion of abolition poetry as the campaign to abolish slavery kind of steps up a gear. And some of the most influential poets doing this are women. So you have Hannah Moore, you have Anne Yearsley, Anna Letitia Barbold, um, and many others who are writing these passionate poetry, sometimes trading on very, very stark and powerful imagery, um, arguing for abolition. You know, these, these poems are intended as political interventions. They are intended to make you feel differently, to make you feel the suffering of the slaves. Now, of course, the question that follows on from that is how can these white middle-class English women know about that, you know, mm. and what kind of right do they have to, to speak about that? But there's no getting over the centrality of their poetry to the campaign. I was, um, I was really surprised to see this, how openly some of the, the sexualized nature of, of slavery was, was discussed in the British press. And um, in the notes that you sent over, there was a, there was a, a speech about essentially a young slave girl menstruating and therefore being strung up by her leg, wearing only a red rag. And this is something presumably would have been sketched in the, in the papers at the time, I don't, whether or not there would have mm-hmm. been illustrations. But, but actually, but the, the sort of the crude language of the sailors being reproduced, one of them saying, um, you know, that, uh, what was it? The ad sent I, I damn me if I like it. I have a good mind to let go. And this is sort of the mm. idea about whether or not he would let her down from being strung up, or whether or not he would come to orgasm, and about whether or not mm. there's references to the idea of sadomasochistic prosti- yeah. prostitution. I'm how much of that would have would have, and then the teacher Bolbold or someone like that would, would have been aware of that kind of thing. How much was that discourse something that you know was crept its way into quote unquote polite society? The poetry of those three women off the top of my head they address assault and rape in in kind of oblique ways Mm. in the way that you don't really mention particular words but the woman is dragged screaming from her family for example that sort of thing um but you know there's this they're they're walking this fine line this ties in with a lot of what we've spoken about between trying to have an impact trying to be powerful trying to be expressive but also trying to be proper also not 
um, devaluing their brand or overshocking. So in 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 some ways a similar, but in some ways a different way from the way that um, uh, slaves or ex-slaves themselves had to control their language, kind of control what they were portraying. These women had to do the same. It doesn't stop some of the poetry from being immensely powerful. Um, Jenny and I were just talking about the abolition poetry before we got here, and Hannah Moore's um, The Slave Trade, um, a poem, or Slavery, a poem, um, and Anne, Year, Anne Yearsley's poem about the slave trade, um, both use, you know, a lot of, they paint these dramatic vignettes of the terrible things that happened to slaves. Um, Barbels is perhaps the most devastating of the lot, because she's writing to Wilberforce, who, um, who's in 1791, uh, one of his various attempts to get the slave trade abolished, has just failed. This is the occasion of Barbald writing to Wilberforce. And she basically says to him, just don't bother. Just don't bother anymore. Thy country sees the sin and stands the shame. She's saying, they know. Stop trying to tell them about this, this young woman, this menstruating young woman being you know, sort of held up in this way and disrespected and abused in this way. Britain knows it stands the shame. It doesn't care. And she ends up, she paints this dystopia, this vision of us all being morally damned, of us all essentially um, being corrupted by our own actions and going to hell. And she finishes um, by saying to Wilberforce, but seek no more to break a nation's fall, for you have saved yourselves, and that is all. So it's this sense embedded in those final lines. There's a sense of, are we even just doing it for our own selfish gratification to pat ourselves on the back? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's one of the bleakest mm, poems I think I know. I think that's, that, that is a really interesting argument about whether or not I guess more in the vindication of the rights of man and the rights of woman, it's more about the kind of the, the discourse we now associate with human rights and the idea that everybody has intrinsic worth. But but some of these slavery poems, you seem to suggest that actually it's more about you know how what it's doing to us to keep slaves, to buy slaves, to own slaves. Actually, it's really it's not it's it's not making a case for everybody being equal in any way. It's it's about the fact that actually it what you know we're morally compromised by doing bad things. I think that's true. I'd say that one of the ways though in which that's complicated and undercut, and one of the things that unites a lot of these um, a lot of abolitionist uh, women poets, for instance, is a, a an absolute belief in the in the capacity of fellow feeling 
to make the world a better place. Now, that might sound terribly naive, and it might also sound rather like sort of playing to the gallery along the lines that you were suggesting earlier in that, you know, well, women are doing what women do, right? Women feel. So, of course, women are going to talk about feeling in abolitionist poetry. But that's but that's absolutely, I think, to, to devalue the political potential that these women genuinely, and many men, I think, of the time, genuinely uh, felt existed in the capacity for feeling a sort of common humanity that might enable us to cut across lines of social and political division, divisions of faith and skin colour and so forth. So I think, you know, on the one hand, it is very much about us, but but there's also a sense in which the us might be much bigger than just Englishness or just me or just the people in Bristol or just the people in Liverpool. There is a kind of, Mm -hmm. there, there is a real sort of utopian political potential there that, that they're desperately trying to cling on to. I was to. surprised to see that there was, as well as the famous, you know, am I not a man and a brother, there was a am I not a woman yes. and, a, and a sister. So there was some attempt to make, yeah. uh, not just m- make it about slavery as a sort of male concern there. If we go, before we go away, is there one suggestion, I guess people might be familiar with Wollstonecraft's work, but is it should we read Desmond is there is there an, an Alan teacher Barbell poem that is that is 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 accessible to the casual listener um I'm probably the worst person to ask about Desmond because I think it's a cracking novel I think it really zips along and it's full of suspense and my, is there a modern my undergraduates edition? don't yes. agree yes Grace there is it's from Broadview and it's wonderful yeah. my undergraduates don't agree right <laughs> um and you know a small number of them do and think it's marvelous but it it may be that um so I say yes. But. Well, I would say the emigrants. I mean, the Charlotte Smith poem, the emigrants, because I think if you really want to, if you want to get to the grips of that absolute sense of something is about to change and the world could become a better place, even though I know it's all messy and it's all very difficult, and then oh crikey, it's all started to go wrong really, really quickly. You can get that very immediately through this poem, and it's just a great piece of writing. Well, that's all for now. Uh, next episode is Fight Club, so come prepared. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman's History Podcast, Hidden Histories, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by India Burke. Our music is Jean-Baptiste Lully's Gavotte, performed by Thrax, and is licensed under Creative Commons. For more information about the writers and works discussed in this programme, visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.